Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. Today we're going to talk with Tim Alberta, a staff writer at The Atlantic, who's got a new book out called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. And it examines the crossover of devout Christianity and hateful right-wing politics. What is it about extreme Republican politics that attracts people who say that they're Christians. So much of what people like Donald Trump say and do seems to contradict those principles. We're going to talk to Tim about his book and about the state of the Republican Party. Tim, it is great to have you back here on Detroit Today. Stephen, it's great to be back and uh, it's great to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you as well. Um, So I want to start with the idea of where you're from. Uh, you're from here in Michigan, like uh, me and lots of other folks who who listen to this show. You grew up in Brighton and were part of an evangelical church. I, I want to have you go back a bit and talk about what it was like growing up in that church and seeing how the intersection, I guess, between evangelical beliefs and Christianity began to intersect more and maybe differently with conservatism and republicanism uh, than they did at one time. What was that like to witness that? Yeah, it's sort of an evolution. And of course, now I have the benefit of hindsight in really being able to look back and connect the dots. You know, all I knew when I was a kid was that I was a part of a, you know, conservative white Republican church in a conservative white Republican town. But I didn't necessarily think that uh, that politics was in any way sort of dictating our, our activities in the church, uh, certainly not dictating our belief system. I... I sort of viewed those things as distinct and, and believed that there was a necessary compartmentalizing of, you know, what are our partisan political views versus what are our theological doctrinal views in the church. I think as I grew older, Stephen, um, I went through a bit of an awakening process where my own faith journey uh, meant scrutinizing and investigating, interrogating my own beliefs at an intellectual level, and then also sort of scrutinizing the church. And, and I think understanding that even as my own faith in Jesus and my own relationship with Jesus was getting stronger and, and and I felt that my own faith foundation was firmer, my confidence in the church was sort of collapsing and, and, and the disillusionment that I was beginning to feel, I realized had a lot to do with that sort of unholy alliance that I was seeing more and more of politics infiltrating the church. And, and frankly, more and more of my fellow believers seemed to be viewing their faith through the lens of politics rather than viewing their politics through the lens of faith. And so it seemed like the tail was kind of beginning to wag the dog. And the the time frame for this is important, too, I think. Um, you know, it's in the 1980s here in Michigan that uh, people who had for a very long time been Democrats uh, in places like Macomb County decided that uh, democratic politics just didn't suit them anymore, didn't suit their interests, and opened their minds, I suppose, to other ways of thinking and voted first for Ronald Reagan uh, in 1980 and 1984, later for people like George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. Um, uh, this shift uh, is, is often characterized as being about economics, 
But it is also, as you point out, about religion. And it, 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 it again, is driven in some ways by a religious sense of what politics mean and how we ought to kind of, I guess, make sense of politics in our country. And I think, you know, when we say that it was driven by religion, I think it's important to emphasize there that religion, in some sense, became a vessel uh, that, and when, what I mean by that is that when you look at the rise of the religious right, the moral majority, if you think about the 1980s and the degree to which um, Jerry Falwell Sr. and his comrades were hugely successful in mobilizing these, these wide swaths of, of conservative, culturally conservative white voters to uh, basically tap into the, the grievance and the resentment and the insecurity they felt with the country changing around them. You know, prayer being banned in public schools, abortion being legalized, pornography on demand, uh, you know, the, the, the drug culture out of control, and now, you know, uh, gay rights on the march. And the demographics of the country are changing rapidly. Suddenly, this idea of a white Christian country mm-hmm. is is slipping away from them. And so there's this, this panic that begins to set in. And I think that religion... For some, not for all and not even for most, but I think for some, religion became a vehicle to, uh, to effectively mobilize these people politically. And what you saw, even during the Trump years, Stephen, was fascinating. You saw more and more white Trump voters identifying as evangelical, even as those same people were going to church less and less. So in other words, evangelical more and more was becoming a political signifier but not a spiritual identifier. It wasn't, it wasn't that they were becoming any more religious per se, but that was now a sort of tribal identity that they were carrying into their politics. Mm. So I want to go back again and talk a little more about your father, uh, who was pastor of uh, this church that you grew up in, um, and he becomes a conservative, more of a conservative, as he gets deeper into leadership in the church. Um, I, I want to start with what you would say that your father might say about the things that made him a Christian. What was it about him that said he was a believer in Christ and the apostles and all of the other things that are part of uh, the Christian church? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, There's a whole spectrum of experiences for people who identify as followers of Jesus, and some are sort of born into it the way that I was and then kind of had to take on my own faith journey and, and really find out for myself who Jesus was. And then there are people like my dad who had a really dramatic conversion experience. He was an atheist into his late 20s. He was working as a financer in New York. My mom worked for ABC Radio. They were like socialite yuppies who owned a Cadillac and went to cocktail parties and and were living the high life. And then my dad had a very dramatic experience hearing the gospel for the first time. And he had considered himself an atheist and suddenly gave his life to Jesus, not only gave his life to Jesus, felt called to the ministry and left his entire life behind, family, friends, career, all of it. He and my mom spent the next couple of decades living on food stamps, preaching in little churches around the country. Now, that's that's born out of a conviction that he felt that that the story of this vagrant preacher from Galilee who, who traveled for three years uh, preaching that there was a new kingdom, a greater kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, that that was a real man and that he really was 
executed by the state of Rome and that he really was seen risen from the dead three days later and that that movement, the Christianity that began to change the world, he, he believed to his, to his core that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the greatest gift this world has ever received. And, and I think as he was in his seminary years, as he was coming of, of uh, a greater conscious culturally and politically during that heyday of the moral majority, there was this sort of effortless, almost subconscious synthesizing of conservative theological doctrine, con- conservative reformed theological beliefs with a conservative cultural and political dogma. A- and that's what you really began to see during the 1980s and certainly into the 1990s, where it, it became almost synonymous, this idea of if you are a, a white evangelical, and I stress the white part because obviously the black church experience is vastly different, mm-hmm. and we know that. But if you identified as a white evangelical, more and more heading towards the turn of the century, it became very clear what that meant, that it was not just what kind of church you belonged to, but it was what you believed on the most divisive uh, social issues of the day. It was how you voted. It was the community that you called home. And so I think for my dad— uh, you know, there was no, it became very difficult to separate those identities. And that's really what I try to unpack in the book is trying to understand where one identity stops and where the other begins. Mm. And he brings these politics into the church, but later regrets it. Talk about what that meant, what that looked like, how he brought those politics into the church and why he came to believe that was a mistake. Well, it's interesting. I describe in the book abortion, the issue of abortion, as almost a gateway drug for evangelicals. And what I mean by that is if you are a, a staunch advocate for the pro-life movement, as my father was, and, and I know many people like this, I have a deep and abiding respect for their very sincerely held convictions on this issue— you believe that abortion is not even a political issue. It is a moral issue. It is a spiritual issue. You believe that life is made in the image of God. And so therefore, you you are galvanized around election time when it comes to this issue of abortion. You can sort of leave a lot of the other things off to the side, the other policy disputes. But when it comes to abortion, the red team is good and the blue team is bad, right? The problem is when you start to introduce that into a church setting— not all believers are are sort of sophisticated enough, mature enough spiritually to be able to compartmentalize and to say, okay, well, yes, on this one issue, we clearly believe this one thing to be true. You start, in many cases, to just reflexively say, you know, red team good, blue team bad, or even more today, red team good, blue team evil. Mm. That, that, that partisan politics becomes a proxy for this cosmic collision of the forces of good and evil in this country. And that's what we started to see in our church. It started with abortion, and then it starts to spiral into these other things, education curriculum and sexuality and uh, Obamacare and, and, and all of these other issues that you, you step back from this and you say, well, hold on a second. Is the standard inside of the church, the, the, the litmus test, the, the question of why we gather as believers, is it around this idea that Jesus was the Son of God and that he, he died on the cross for the atonement of humanity's brokenness and that he came to reconcile us to God? Is, is that what we believe and is that the barrier to entry? Or 
Is it a partisan, cultural, tribal identification that becomes the litmus test in the church? And so that's what you started to see, is that what's, what, what began as, uh, a, I think, a much narrower ethical focus on a political issue, it began to snowball to the point where there was really no controlling it, and politics began to permeate the entire conversation inside the church. Yeah. But if you, so if you take abortion, though, which I think, again, as you point out, if, uh, if you are uh, an evangelical Christian, or frankly, if you're an adherent to many, many uh, religious uh, institutions in this in this country or beliefs uh, that's a moral issue right uh, it's a bright line moral issue uh, I, I I believe that people who oppose abortion in that way for those reasons see it as tantamount to murder right it, it is a sin and there isn't any any room for kind of gray area there but when you get to some of these other issues, it's less clear how Christian beliefs align with the policies that uh, right-wing uh, politics are, 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 are pursuing. So, for instance, immigration. Uh, whatever you believe about uh, the policies there, Christianity teaches compassion and tolerance and that we are to reach out to people who don't have the things that we have or the advantages that we had to help them. That would seem at odds with uh, the, the policies that the Republican Party, for instance, has. Uh, when we talk about race and equality in this country and uh, making up for the things that were done wrong in the past, correcting them in an affirmative way, uh, those seem to align. Those ideas seem to align with with Christianity. So, so how do you get from that bright line, clearly religious position on abortion to these other things, without people stopping to say, "Well, hold on a second, this actually isn't what I believe, and it's not what I've been taught to believe." Well, I'm so glad you asked that, Stephen, because I think what you're getting to here is really important. There's a selective application of biblical principles and biblical teachings that tends to inform churches based on what, what their sort of partisan affiliation is. Now, I think for many of us, we could almost live with this idea of, okay, if you're going to go to a church and they're going to be very political there— at least they're going to just sort of let it let let all of the issues be aired biblically, and they're go, and they're not going to put their thumb on the scales, and then they sort of let the chips fall where they may. I think at least we could sort of stomach that as it being you know a more even-handed approach, and even you know I will say to my dad's credit, um, he talked consistently from the pulpit for many years about poverty, about immigration, about caring for refugees, about caring for prisoners, about caring for the orphaned and the widowed and the homeless. And, 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 and also in a town like Brighton, uh, talked often about the dangers of wealth and, and how the Bible consistently warns about the, the, the rich man and his difficulty finding his way into heaven because of not only how he ignores the marginalized in society, but because how wealth becomes a, a, an idol to him. Those are not always popular messages to deliver in front of a conservative, white, wealthy congregation. <laughs> and so I always appreciated that, at the very least about my dad, would, would, you know, being able to balance these things and say, well, let's be clear about what Jesus really taught. But on that very point about what Jesus really taught, 
Stephen, I think this is the entire problem for me, which is, you know, w- when you step into some of these really right wing, decidedly right wing congregations today that have sort of built their entire identity as a congregation around tribal politics. Um, if you quote the, the, the teachings of Jesus in some of these settings, people will almost cock their head at you sideways and like, well, what are you, woke? You know, what are you, uh, what are you a Marxist, a socialist? You know, the, the, the last shall be first. Turn the other cheek. I mean, Donald Trump Jr. literally a couple of years ago at this big conservative conference held in conjunction with this church out in Phoenix, he mocked this saying of turn the other cheek. You know, he said, well, where has that ever gotten us, mm-hmm. right? And, and well, if you're a Christian, you believe that that's gotten us eternal life. You believe that that's gotten us in covenant with our creator. But I think the idea of lowering oneself and humbling oneself and praying for our enemies and loving those who persecute us, I think that that it implies a weakness, a cultural, political vulnerability that many Christians are simply not willing to adopt at this stage because they think that the stakes have gotten too high. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about your father's funeral and the reaction you got from some people, not everybody, in the congregation that he led and why people felt like they wanted to say those things to you in particular. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a crazy surreal story and I sort of I, I'm still I'm still almost in disbelief that I'm telling it, but yeah, I mean my dad died in the summer of 2019 and the timing just happened to be that I had released my first book uh less than two weeks before he died. And, and my book was about Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty unsparing in, in its criticisms of Trump for his behavior and his rhetoric. And so I was, at the time of his death, in the crosshairs of right-wing media. And I had a lot of people giving me a lot of grief from the right about you know what I had to say about Trump. So my dad dies very unexpectedly. And I come home to Brighton, to the church where I'd grown up for his funeral. And lots of people were there to hug me and cry with me and mourn with me and try to comfort me. But there were also quite a few people who saw it as an occasion to confront me, to to have it out with me, to litigate the differences uh, of opinion about Trump, about the MAGA movement, about politics in general. And, you know, my dad's in a casket nearby and there are people in my face wanting to argue with me about about all of this stuff that just doesn't matter ultimately. And what was so striking, I, I guess, Stephen, in that moment was to to recognize, you know, look, I'd been covering p- politics for a long time. I've been covering right-wing conservative politics for a long time. That was sort of my bread and butter. I knew that there was something off in the evangelical world. I had sensed it for a very long time. But I guess I'd been trying to ignore it. I'd been kind of turning a blind eye to it, which in, you know, retrospect, I feel sort of guilty about because this thing was spiraling out of control long before, you know, these people confronted me at my dad's funeral. But I guess in many ways, that was sort of a final wake-up call for me to recognize that this was a problem and this was a problem at scale. This mm-hmm. was not just, this was not something happen, happening way at the fringes, that there really was, I think, a, a significant portion of the evangelical world that was beginning to be radicalized by, by our political moment and that something had to be done to address that. So does that shake your faith in faith or does it shake your faith in politics or does it shake your faith in both? 
You know, it doesn't. So here's the thing. Um, I really, and I'm being honest, I, I worried a great deal when I decided to embark on this journey about my faith because it's very precious to me. And, and I, I worried that investigating the dark underbelly of the evangelical complex would, would, would leave me uh, strained in, in my relationship with Christ. In fact, it's done just the opposite, Stephen, because what you recognize, as my favorite author C.S. Lewis once wrote, that we only know that a line is crooked because we've first seen a straight line. And I think what you recognize when you see this corruption and this sort of um, moral relativism and this decay inside of the church, what you recognize is that it is such a, a stark deviation from the example of Christ. And the church, let's be clear, it is an institution of men. And, and all institutions of men are vulnerable to the sorts of compromises and and the trade-offs and the Faustian bargains that uh, that 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 sap them of their credibility and, and hurt their reputation. And so the church is no different. I think what makes it especially painful inside the church is that we think the church should be better than those outside institutions. We think that the church should hold itself to a higher standard. And in fact, often the opposite is true. When you, when you think that you're doing the Lord's work and when you think that you're on sort of a divine mission, then you have an ability to turn a blind eye to wrongdoing and to excuse bad behavior because you think that the ends justify the means. But in fact, when you study scripture and specifically when you study the gospels and the teachings of Christ, you see repeatedly that Jesus has very little to say about the ends but he has everything to say about the means, how you treat your enemy, how you love your neighbor, how you engage with the culture around you. Those things matter a lot. They matter much more than whether you win or lose some election. And so I think by sort of going back to the basics and stripping away all of the trappings and all of the extracurriculars of, of, the, of the evangelical movement and just centering on Christ, it's actually done a great deal for my faith. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Uh, Tim, I want to talk about what you think might be possible for evangelicals. Is there a way back from, I guess, this kind of tortured existence, I would imagine, for some of them, where uh, the things that you believe, if you really believe them, have to be compromised over and over again in order to support the political party or the candidate or the policies that you think favor you. What's the way that this gets, quote unquote, fixed? And I use that that term pretty loosely there. Yeah, boy, it's, I mean, that's a good question. I, I, and a complicated answer in some ways, actually a really simple answer in other ways. So I think... Uh, what I'm trying to get across in the book in many ways, Stephen, is just a call to, to return to the basics. And what I mean by that is uh, not allowing your political and cultural tribal affiliations to form your identity and then let you know faith be sort of downstream from there. I- instead, recenter your entire identity around your faith in Christ, and then let that dictate everything else. All of your other allegiances should be subordinate. I mean, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. The idea there is that 
All of these other identities are ultimately secondary. Your identity as an American, your identity as a Republican or as a Democrat or, or whatever, you know, it's important to recognize that if in fact we are called to be citizens of a different kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world. And again, I want to just acknowledge that to some people listening, that might sound crazy. Mm-hmm. That might sound totally alien to you. And I understand that. But if you are a follower of Jesus, he describes repeatedly in the Gospels the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as he calls it, as a real place, not an abstraction, not some idea, not some feel-good thing, a real physical community of believers, almost a nation. That's Mm -hmm. how he describes it. And if you are a citizen in that nation, then your allegiance here must be secondary. And so I think trying to get back to keeping the main thing the main thing, making sure that your identity first and foremost is wrapped up in Jesus and in his teachings, I think that would go a long way towards sort of bringing down the temperature in our society, bringing down the temperature in our churches, and allowing people once again to have just a clearer perspective. It's not that you can't be civically involved and not that you can't vote, not that you can't care about politics. Sure you can. I mean, you're, you, you are allowed to be a citizen of this country too, but it's the ordering of these things. It's the prioritizing of these things that I'm really trying to get at. Here. Yeah. We, we unfortunately only have about a minute left, but, but I want to talk about what happens after, after your father is gone at the church uh, where he was pastor. Somebody tries much of what you're talking about, and it doesn't go that well. Well, it's interesting. Uh, So the guy, (laughs) the thing I credit my dad with the most is that after a quarter century leading this, you know, big conservative, uh, almost a megachurch in Brighton where I grew up that, that had grown to, you know, exponentially over the years, he appoints as his successor a guy who's not a conservative Republican. He's actually a little bit of a lefty because he's, you know, he's like he's anti-gun and he's anti-war and he cares deeply about poverty programs. And 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 this guy came in and really got the treatment. He really got the business and had a very hard time. He almost had to leave the church, mm-hmm. but he's stuck it out and he's trying to deliver this same message to his congregants, challenging them fix your eyes on Jesus and then everything else is going to fall into its proper place. And and God bless him, man. He's doing the Lord's work there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Tim Alberta, it is really great to have you back here in studio with us. I'm going to make you promise that as we get into the 2024 election cycle, you will come back and see us again. Now you live locally too. Yes, sir. I'm your neighbor now, right down the road. That's right. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks so much for being here. Today's episode of Detroit Today was produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Nate Bender. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Editing and mixing is by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our podcast manager is David Lyons, and our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET Public Radio. If you love the conversations we have on Detroit Today, consider donating to WDET, the public radio station in Detroit that we call home. If you want to be a part of the conversation and call in, you can listen live every day on WDET.org or on the WDET mobile app. Or if you live in Southeast Michigan and still love listening to good old-fashioned radio like me, tune in to 1019 FM.